Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the August 2016 podcast. This podcast is going to be centered around cinematography. All right, let's get started. All right, question for the SIC. So I'm directing my first feature. I always like to roll my rehearsals and anytime I have actors in front of the camera and they are being silly or just being natural, I like to roll and capture it. Mind you, these are a few name actors who face you've recognized. I tell my DP to roll the camera and I get, I'm not ready yet. I respond, I know, just roll. Long story short, rolling doesn't happen. Mind you, the actors are having a dope moment, singing, joking, being silly, and it's a comedy movie. She still refuses to roll. I like to roll rehearsals while blocking and getting marks as well. Not saying we are going to use it, but just in case a magical or usable moment happens. Am I out of line or asking too much? Okay. This has been a great conversation on Facebook, and I wanted to address this question uh, because of this. This is not an unreasonable request, but it's a request working with your director of photography that needs to be done in the prep process. Because this is a kind of an instinctual thing that a lot of times you'll see something magical happening and you're like, roll, roll. Okay, that's all good. If I know that this is going to be kind of the the mantra, let's say, of how we're going to be shooting, then I, as a director of photography, will prepare for that. And if we're going to do a rehearsal, I will go for that rehearsal. I will light it. So when we roll a rehearsal, we're rolling. It's not a rehearsal we are dialed in. And the only way that that can happen is the conversation that you and I, from a director and a director of photography, sitting in a room, discussing the mood, the tone, the the language of this of this film, and then you talking me through the process of how you'd like to roll out. And if you say you really like to roll rehearsals, you're not worried about if it's totally in focus or, you know, that a rack or this or the camera movement didn't work perfectly, 
then I'm going to do my best to get it dialed in before I say, all right, let's go for a rehearsal. Case in point, let's take this movie that I'm doing right now. Stephen Fung is a very instinctual director. He loves that lightning in the bottle kind of performance that he gets on a rehearsal. And my camera team wants to do their very best. Well, I roll rehearsals all the time because what I've found is our rehearsals are better than we actually, when we shoot it. I've never come across this in my 25 years of experience. It has been the most bizarre, surreal experience of my cinematography career. I've never been with a crew that the rehearsal where we have no idea, no clue, somewhat of rough blocking, and it's absolutely magical. And then after we do it, there's like, hey, you know, it would be really great if we racked a little quicker, or hey, it would be awesome if we moved the camera and maybe boom down at this and there. After that, the whole thing is systematically destroyed. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. So we've gotten to the point where the rehearsal we know is going to be the best shot. So what I would say for you working with your cinematographer, this is a conversation that you have in pre-production. It's a conversation that you preface by saying, I know it's not going to be perfect. Uh, the lighting might not be totally worked out, uh, but I really love this kind of feel and the energy and that lightning in a bottle and the serendipity moments that happen because of it. And I would love to be a part of that. And I have to say, working on Fathers and Daughters more than anything really cemented this very fact. We as cinematographers can do so much to convey the visual landscape and the mood and the tone of the film. But it's all based on that actor's and that actress's performance. It can be the shittiest lighting in the world, but if that performance is off the charts, that is all that matters. If you are emotionally connected, if the story is driving you, it does not matter. It just really doesn't. I mean, we are the icing on the cake, let's say, to an amazing performance. And when I was working with Russell Crowe and Amanda Seyfried and Aaron Paul and, and all these amazing casts on Fathers and Daughters that, you know, they were, we were the, this band of brothers and sisters that came together that most of the people were working for scale. Budget was very low and they were there for the art. And what I wanted to do is what Roger Deakins continues to say is we are story assist. We are not, look at me, look at me, look at this amazing light and the shafts and this and that and all this stuff. It is story assist. If we are assisting the story and helping create the mood that the actors and the tone and the relevancy of their performance then that is our job. And if a director comes to you and says, I really like these serendipity moments, I want to roll on a rehearsal where they're loose and they maybe really don't think it's like a take and they give me something different, well, then I'm rolling. 
I'm rolling as many of these as possible. Now, is my lighting going to be finessed? Well, sometimes what I'm telling you is I'm having this in my head in pre-production. I am finessing this lighting. So before I say, let's do a rehearsal, I've already got it pretty much dialed in. Now, I'm going to see things that I'd want to change. But if the actor's in the pocket, I'm not going to go in there and stop that train. I'm going to let them go. And whatever subtle nuances or slight adjustment and fill or whatever tweaking I would do is going to be irrelevant. Because if they're out of, if they're in their performance and they're in that pocket, this is what your job is as a cinematographer to assist that pocket. And that means not tweaking, not going in finessing. If the director wants to go right away, you go right away. If there's a shadow or some weird thing or the camera wasn't perfect, then you're communicating this to your team to hopefully dial it in before we say roll again. And this is why communication is so important. Not only the director and the DP communicating and being on the same page, it's the camera, lighting, and grip team. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I cannot stress how powerful having some type of communication system that is always on. The radio is a delay factor. I have to push a button. I have to talk to somebody with a clear comm system or, an, you know, some type of system that's on your head and you're communicating to the whole team and talking to them. So imagine I have my grip on the channel. I have my gaffer on the channel. I have my camera team, focus puller, my second AC all on the same channel. And what this does is you can see how quick we move because of it. The operator's looking through the lens and he sees a C-stand. Well, he's immediately saying, Martin, I got a C-stand on my right side. Can you back it out? I don't have to tell Martin that. I don't have to go through the whole process. The operator who's on that same channel is talking to him and it's already happening. Bobby, who is our key grip, he's like, he's listening to the dialogue that I'm talking about. You know, the next shot, we're going to go to a slider, dolly, da, da, da. He's already getting that stuff ready. You know, all this dialogue that happens when you're hearing the dialogue of the director as well, because the director comes up next to me and he goes, all right, the next setup, I really want to do this push in. Uh, on him. And it's like, yeah, I'm okay pushing. Yeah, let's go on a 50 mil. Well, now the ACs are already hearing this. So everyone is starting to be in the loop. Okay. So the minute we say, good take, cut, we got that. They're already putting the 50 mil on. I don't even have to say anything. So this is communication. This is incredibly precise, effective communication. And Back to this question of should she have rolled? Well, she should have rolled if this conversation happened in pre-production or at the beginning of the day. Because even at the beginning of the day, that conversation can happen and I'm immediately dialed in. A lot of like, let's take semi-pro for example. Will Farrell had every time he improvised, he did something different. So I wanted to be able to light 
it in a way that really didn't look like any comedy you ever seen before, but still shoot it with multiple cameras and multiple angles so we could get the best performance. And this is what I think was very powerful about that comedy, which it was the first comedy I had ever done, and I wanted to do it different. I wanted it to be unique and look like no other comedy had looked because I feel like a lot of comedies are overlit. They give the person tons of room to move around the space and do what they do. Well, I did that as well, but it didn't look like a comedy. So that was really my my whole kind of idea and communication with the director is we said, you know, this wants to be a period piece. It took place in the mid 70s. So giving it that 70s look, giving it the feel of that vibe and the mood and the tone of that, but not over lighting the hell out of it and shooting it with multiple cameras so Will Ferrell could really improvise and all the actors could improvise. So that's a conversation that we had in pre-production. One, we said we want to be able to shoot with as many cameras as possible, give the actors freedom to move around and get as many angles on that performance as possible and have it not look like an overlit comedy. Okay, cool. This is pre-production planning and in my head, I am the, the communication has come to me through the director and now I'm going to implement, going back to the same question. This is, as a director, if this is a big part of who you are and what you get from an actor, then this should have been your first conversation with your director of photography. So it's like you're, you say it in your line, I'm directing my first feature, okay? So obviously this is new to you. And this is uh, your learning. And through the learning process, you're going to make mistakes. Things are going to happen. I mean, I don't. I cannot tell you how many mistakes I make, even on a daily basis. There's choices that you make that are wrong. This is filmmaking. This is being an artist. There's going to be choices that are spot on, and then there's going to be choices that are not. Let's uh, take what I did two days ago. I was on uh, our set of adventures, and I wanted this mood of this scene to be really stark. I wanted you to come into it, and you're like, whoa, this is dark, but it's daytime. It was a weird space that had all these different, um, we were like four stories up in a building, and it had like broken ceilings and hardly any windows, so everything was open to the natural ambient of the day. And I hung a ton of black visqueen and cut it all up and tried to contain as much as I could the ambient so I could create it nice and dark and moody. Well, we had a very late call because we had to plan because the whole end of the movie changed. So we had to scout new locations the first half of the day, and then we got in there to shoot the scene. Well, I couldn't shoot the scene in the correct way of rotating to the sun. Even though you're in interiors, you everyone has to understand that the exterior dictates what you do every single location. If there is ambience around and there's sun and it's going to come in windows and it's going to ebb and flow your ambience, then you have to circle your performances and your angles and your blocking all around 
the sun's path. And I wasn't able to do that the first day. So what ended up happening was I got into a situation where it started to get late. The ambience dropped like a rock. I wasn't able to do it, you know, keep this consistency of light. Because right now, when in the beginning of the day, you know, at one o'clock, two o'clock when we rolled, I was able to have darkness, but detail in the shadow. When the light changed radically, I had to start to scrim down all these lights as quickly as we could, which we couldn't do it quick enough. And the ambience was just dropping, dropping, dropping. So what ended up happening is it became even starker and really deep, deep blacks that I just could not inject enough fill into. Well, this is a mistake on my part. I should have stood up and said, we cannot start this late on this scene. And, you know, the director had conveyed a situation with me that said, okay, this is a very simple scene. We're not going to have a lot of coverage. And what happened? We had a ton of coverage. <laughs> so it's these are the kind of things you always have to plan on. You, It's not that you don't take people at their word, uh, but you just have to plan for the unexpected all the time. And uh, it was supposed to be six shots. It ended up being 17 to 18 setups. And I just could not light and balance the ratios quick enough. And in the DI, I know I'll be able to dig out the shadows and balance it out. But it was a mistake on my part on not standing up and saying, this is going to really be bad if we're not able to start early enough so we don't have that disaster moment where the ambience just drops. Now, what happened on day two? Day two, we went back to the same location. I was ready to shoot at 10 o'clock. We completely oriented our angles all the way to the path of the sun. We wrapped at five and we got a four-page scene done in like seven hours. That is the difference between planning and communicating as a cinematographer and coming up with a lighting style that is then going to embrace what's happening outside. And we spun and rotated within our location absolutely perfectly to the sun. And we got so much more coverage on the scene than we did the scene prior based on right place, right time, communicating your vision and orchestrating the plan. Okay. This is huge. And it gets back to the same question that I'm addressing as number one in the cinematography uh, podcast. It is all about communication. And as much as you can talk to your cinematographer as a director, as much as this DP, the director of photography, can talk to the director and say, you know what, this is not going to be good if we start that late. So, and I was all trying to plan the next five days and making sure my team knew where we were going to go and how we were going to light all these things and, you know, trying to be communicating the vision for the next four to five days that we're shooting and not really understanding that what our day was is we had to get up there and we had to start shooting before lunch and we didn't. We shot after lunch and then I went into the disaster of losing so much ambience that I couldn't really deliver and sustain the look for that scene. All right. I hope I have answered that question efficiently and effectively. All right, let's go on to number two. Hey, Shane, absolutely loving the starter cinematography kit. 
and filling in the blanks in my education. It's a real blessing. I have a question about the darkroom scene in Crazy Beautiful that you use an example. There is so much coverage in that scene, so many angles and variation. Do you approach a scene with the volume of coverage already in mind? Have you storyboarded all that coverage? Or do you also wing it a little once the area is lit and you got the actors warmed up? Do you ever wing it at ear level? Okay, I'm going to stop right there because he's got more questions. So this is the first part of the question. Okay, so the crazy beautiful sequence. This was so much fun. And it was one of those experiences in my career. I was starting out, I think this was my third third movie. So I was very green. But I had learned a lot on my first two or three movies. So I was really enjoying everything was new to me. And that's why I continue to try and change everything up, every project that I do, because I love that feeling of new. I love that feeling of just being so uncomfortable that I'm on edge and and trying to figure it all out. Well, with this scene, a darkroom scene is lit by red light, right? So what do we do when film's last layer of emulsion is red? Well, that's going to... Imagine the light is filtering through the emulsion and it sees all the different colors until red is the base level of the emulsion. So you're cutting through all those different layers of the emulsion till it gets the red. So that's why when you use red light, it looks defocused, even in digital. And that's again, you know, digital sensors are creating the same kind of feel as what film resembles. So this red layer is something that I really needed to address because I wanted it to have the defocus quality, but I didn't want it to go too defocused, right? So this is where Technology is always changing, and it was even changing within the gel world, okay, our filters that we put on our lights. Right around when we were shooting Crazy Beautiful, Roscoe came out with Cal Colors. And what it was, was it took every color in the spectrum and it made different gradations of that color. And what they found with this process is by using different gradations, you could then within the color timing of your film, because remember, you got to understand Crazy Beautiful was all photochemical. So I'm not in a DI bay, you know, swinging colors and opening up mid-tones and all that stuff. I'm literally, you know, I have cyan, yellow, green, red, blue, uh, uh, magenta. That's all I have. And I'm just, you know, working with my lights and getting it in the pocket based on complete photochemical. So with this, I used a Cal color that was a red, but not the saturated red that you would see in a standard darkroom. And with that, I was then able to infuse more red tones within the color timing with the, you know, photochemical color timing to saturate that red. And by saturating that red that way, I was able to keep the sharpness. If I had gone with a full, deep, deep primary red, then it would have been very, very soft. 
and the whole scene would have felt soft. So by going with a red that wasn't so saturated and then, which that's how I exposed the film, and then using the photochemical process to then augmenting and assisting in saturating the red and getting a little deeper in tonality, I was able to keep the sharpness in the image. So many cool things about the art of cinematography. And and I mean, I can go on for another 30, 40 years on talking about all the stuff that I've learned. This is subtle details that, you know, the thought process of thinking it through is all about reading and learning and keeping current and up to date. I invest so much in myself, in my craft, not just educating all of you, but literally reading and, you know, saying, okay, why would somebody use that? And why, what are they doing with that? And what, what is this new light manufacturer come out with? And why is that going to help assist my vision better? And I mean, you have to keep so up to date and spend money to continue to educate yourself. It is so important. So getting back to this question. Okay, sorry, I I went on a tangent. Okay, so I'm using this red that's not so red and then getting that sharpness based on that. Now, I top lit the scene because I figured, you know, a red light is the safe light. So I created, uh, the room was like 14 by 14. So I hung a 12 by 12 full grid cloth over the top of the set. And then I put an LCD, light controlling device, that is basically an egg crate. And that kept it off the walls. And then I hung like 50 parkans with this red gel on them. And I was able to highlight specific areas by heating up a specific area on the full grid cloth letting the center go dark if I wanted to and highlighting just the, you know, the developer or where she's hanging her pictures. So all this was done on just not one source that came in as this top source, but it was a bit of, you know, heating up hot sections of this diffusion that created that kind of mood. Now, Getting back to your question, so many angles and variations. How do you approach a scene with the volume of coverage already in mind? Have you storyboarded all that? Well, with John Stockwell, the director, you do not storyboard anything, okay? Everything with John Stockwell is in the moment. Everything is wing it. Now, I learned so much from John Stockwell that it changed my career and the way that I am a director of photography. He shaped me in such a different way that I changed on that movie. And this is what's so important is working with all different types of people and all like, you know, when I work with John, I heard all the horror stories of he just wings it and you have to be turning all around and you really can't light much and all these things that I heard about him. And I just said, you know what? Let's see. Let's let's see how I can embrace that kind of thought process and and wing it and fly by the seat of my pants, kind of look at the scene and then react to what the actors are doing. And that was such an eye-opening experience for me as a cinematographer because I loved it. I, everything was felt new every day because this is the way he wanted to direct this movie. Now, was there a thought process on what we were going 
going to do. Yeah, I planned as much as it in my head as I could, like how we're going to cover the scene, what is the emotion of that scene. And the emotion in this scene was, this is the moment where they really fall in love, okay? And I wanted to do this in a way that was really kind of sexy and really genuine and really unique. So with that, I toplet the scene. I, two specific shots that I absolutely wanted. I wanted a, well, three. I wanted a low angle in the corner with her on the developer was kind of our wide shot where you could see under her shirt ever so slightly. You could see her shape and that was a big foreground element. So it's like, okay, it's like we got to show off how beautiful this woman is, even though she's tragic, fragile, broken, kind of screwed up. It's like, let's show her raw beauty with Carlos coming in, there was one shot that I absolutely wanted, and that was down low, we see her feet, we see a backpack drop, and we see her legs spread, okay? It's sexy because that, in that environment, in that red top light, and it kind of slightly defocused and shadows falling off starkly as the walls are black and all that stuff just really added to that moment. So that was the second shot I wanted. The third shot is I had the production designer build all these kind of railing strips that were used for, you know, hanging the shelving and stuff. And they all had holes in them. And I wanted to be able to get on like 180 and 150 millimeter lenses and dolly through these holes and these dark shapes in the foreground. And I wanted to feel almost like a voyeur, like I was looking in to this world and what was I going to see and what was I going to miss? Oh, and oh my God, what, what are they doing? Oh, and right when they got to that moment, there was a shadow that came across and then it opened up. So it, there was kind of this mystery. And then all of a sudden the shocker of the guy coming in and saying, hey, what are you doing in here? And then the scene, you know, concludes. So this was very much planned in regards to, I knew I wanted this wide showing the beautiful shape of Kirsten Dunst. I wanted a uh, this moment where her legs spread. And I also wanted the moment of shooting through all these uh, shelves and uh, bits and pieces of of uh, of the uh, dark room elements. So these were three definite things I wanted, and then I lit it to be that. And then we came in and we saw the actors do a specific thing, and we did wing it. We reacted to that, and we're like, oh, okay, so they're going to move over here. They're not going to go over in this area. They're just going to immediately when they get in, you know, they're going to have this conversation, and then they go right into it. Well, I was like. Like, holy shit. Okay, let's react to that. Let's find a different angle that we can, you know, that we can still get the, what we were talking about now that they're just going to just drop and go for it right there. So this is a wing it kind of mentality. And do I wing it at my level? Absolutely. This is my planning. In pre-production, 
I do everything possible to be incredibly organized, to communicate to all the key players of exactly what the vision is, what kind of gear we're using, everything possible for us to be able to convey what we need. And and kind of a, a rough shot list, whether we're storyboarding or using uh, these techniques to be able to educate all of the team. All that is done. And then on the day, we get there and completely fuck it up. So it's like, because we know we have plan A, but what could plan B be when you start to see the performance of the actors and they start to maybe take it a different direction than you thought? And this is what you want to say. Okay, let's just screw it up. And and yes, we planned all this and this is what we talked about, but it's taking a different direction. And this is lightning in a bottle. And as a cinematographer, you want to throw gasoline on that. You want that to just go flare out and flame out. You want that be able to assist in the story. And if the actors are taking a different direction that was planned, then you want to be there as lighting and story assist. Just like Roger Deakins always says, this is why he is a master. The man is all about the story and all about just placing the cameras and not look at me, look at me style of cinematography. And that's why I think he's one of the best cinematographers in the world, because it's truly that is how I roll out as a cinematographer as well. Okay. So do you ever wing it? I got that question. Uh, Do you approach it? So the volume of coverage that we did within that location was, you know, I set up two cameras on the long lenses so we could be going at the same time that they were kissing and doing everything that they were doing. I wanted that to feel they didn't have to go through this process 97 thousand times. So we had two angles shooting through, you know, all those different elements that we built. So we felt very voyeuristic. Even when you were down on the ground, when the backpack hit and the legs spread, you felt like a voyeur. And that is really what we wanted to convey here is that it had this kind of rawness and, you know, that young love, that teenager you know, kind of vibe. And this is what John Stockwell really wanted this movie to be. And I think we did an amazing job in pulling that off. Okay. He had another question. I was curious about what's your view on heavy drinking in the industry? (laughs) I love it. I've recently quit drinking for the past few months in an attempt to gain some more hours out of the day to practice and work on the craft. And I was just curious as to how much you think drinking plays a role, if any, in creativity, motivation, career progression, and success in the industry. Thank you so much for being the best mentor we could ask for. Well, thank you very much for this question and your honesty and just this amazing community that I that you all have been a part of creating. All right, drinking. Okay, you've asked the right man. No. <laughs> Uh, I love wine. I think everyone knows that. And there are a ton of cinematographers out there that, well, I won't say ton. There are several cinematographers that love the process of drinking and it's their inspiration and their creativity and that's how they create. There's other that use other means and drugs to be able to go there. I don't, I'm not a person that drinks on the job. I don't ever 
I think that's irresponsible and it's not anything that you should ever do. But drinking after work, I think is very important. Very important just to uh, hang with the crew as well to kind of, you know, have that beer after wrap or a nice glass of wine to talk with the crew and just decompress and, and talk about the day and what worked and what didn't work and everything I find is a huge, huge leadership building and inspirational and passion inspiring of these people. You know, you're, these are co-collaborators. They're not working under you. They are working with you. And this is something that you want to convey to them at all times. We're in this together. I am not the boss, even though I am the boss. We're all working together and I respect all everyone's opinion. And there's going to be some times where I cannot take that opinion because there's too much coming in for me. And I, you know, on all sides and all angles, but there are times when, of course, I'm going to listen to your opinion and we are going to do it exactly that way. But it's so important to bond with them. And I always find it's really nice to, I always have like a, a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc on the truck that, you know, when they call rap, I come down and, and we, uh, instead of breaking bread, we break beer and break wine. Clink. It's just a good leadership and, and bonding with your crew moment. After work, you know, I, I love food. I'm a big foodie and I'm a big wine guy. So I love to, to drink, you know, a glass or two each night. And I think it, it kind of, it's not that I'm looking for the effects of alcohol, but I do love the effects of alcohol with food. And that's where wine and food, that beautiful mix and how it rolls off my palate and you know it just it's, it's something that that I that's how I see drinking as I don't see it as something like oh god what a day I gotta slam a bottle of wine because uh, geez the day was so stressful now I'm there for the food wine mixture and what that does in the flavor and taste because I'm a chef as well. I love to cook. So food and wine and that whole world is kind of my, if I have to say I, I have a hobby outside of cinematography, it is being a chef. I love to cook. I love to create, go to a restaurant and taste something and not find the recipe online, but to figure it out just with trial and error and kind of design my own take on it. I kind of do the same thing with my cinematography. So my cooking is very much alive and unique that way as well. So, all right, there's the drinking question answered. All right, let's go on to the next question. Hi, Shane. I recently joined the Inner Circle and I'm loving it. Awesome. Thank you. You provide exactly the information I need to help push my cinematography further than ever. After scouring YouTube for real applicable info, it's so refreshing to be a part of the community you've created. My question is this. I shoot with the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera with mainly Rokinon Cine lenses, 14, 25, and 85, in log, ProRes, or RAW. I get decent results, but when I go to the color grade, my image always comes out feeling brownish and muddy, especially the blacks. Have you encountered this problem? And solved it or have a solution to avoid footage from feeling muddy. Thanks, Jack. All right, Jack. One thing I want to say about this is 
The Blackmagic line of cameras is a very impressive uh, camera line. The reason being is it gives you the power of 12 to 13 stops of latitude in a price point that not many other camera companies touch. And it gives you a raw form factor that at the price point, no other camera manufacturer is delivering on. But with that requires an amazing amount of skill to get the image to look incredible. And it's not only done in the post color correction, but it's done on how you light. Now, how you light is a big way to get the best out of this camera. And the way to light with this camera is you cannot use the back monitor. What I'm seeing from what you're saying is that you are underexposing this image if it's looking muddy. And that's what I found with this camera. It's very easy to underexpose. And the camera actually does not function well underexposed. That camera needs light. And I found that on so many of the of the forums and education of what people have done with the camera and everything, they really flatten this thing out and underexpose the image. And then they try to inject as much contrast in it to, as possible, and it ends up being very noisy. Well, that's because they're not giving the camera enough light. Muddy means underexposed. If I underexpose film, then it has a muddy quality to it and a smoky quality, like the blacks will smoke out and they get bluish smoke. Well, digital does the same thing, but it's muddy. And with the black magic, it's brown. With the Area Alexa, it's muddy green. With the red, it's muddy magenta. So these are things where each camera kind of reacts differently to being underexposed. And the black magic line reacts with a brownish mud. Now, the best way for you to expose correctly is to spend the money on a monitor. It's so worth all the investment of if you're buying a camera that's only seven or 800 bucks, then the best thing you should do if you want to get the, the the greatest performance out of that device is to spend four times what that camera costs you in a monitor. And once you do that, you're all of a sudden open your eyes up to how to expose that camera. And it's all based on lookup tables. So what you want to do is you want to start building lookup tables on your Blackmagic Pocket Camera in DaVinci that you can then embed into a monitor. And once you embed that look into the monitor, now you're lighting and exposing correctly. We are about ready to launch this massive DIT live color grading educational art and science tech series on how to live color grade on set, building your lookup tables and all these things. This is going to be something that's going to be hugely beneficial for you because once you start to do this and design your lookup tables and then buy that expensive monitor that enables you to import LUTs, and it can be as small as a small HD uh, 702 that you can embed LUTs in or as expensive as a 9-inch Flanders 
uh, or even more expensive as a 17 or 24 inch Flanders CM or DM 250, where you can actually embed your lookup tables, 16 of them in the monitor, and you can choose. And this will start to get you to expose this camera correct. And once you do that, you're going to start to see that the mud you talk about is going to start to go away and the brown factor and everything is going to start to uh, be alleviated. And you're going to be able to, with the subtle nuances of just, you know, cranking your blacks down and infusing some contrast and adding some color, the image is going to snap right into form based on your lookup tables and how you exposed it. And I think that is the way to kind of take that black magic digital negative and get the best out of it. And this is something that, you know, you buying a very inexpensive camera is very rewarding and enlightening, let's say, because you have now all of a sudden you have a thousand dollar camera that has all this power of 13 stops of latitude and raw files and gives you all this range and everything. But if you don't know how to expose it and get it in the right pocket, then you're going to deliver not any better images than if you had a even cheaper camera. So with this cheapness comes money that you have to spend on the back end to be able to finesse that image and get the best performance out of it. All right. Hope I have uh, answered that one. All right. Number four. Shane, I recently watched a movie that used multiple aspect ratios based on the time period of the scene. It got me to wondering how an aspect ratio affects your choices as a cinematographer. What choices become more critical? Keep up the great work and thanks for all you do. Rock on, John G. All right. Thank you, John. I will continue to rock on. Okay. Aspect ratio. This is a really good one. And I'm going to bring one of my favorite films up as an example. When I was asked by Bill Paxton to shoot The Greatest Game Ever Played, we really talked about aspect ratio. Now, the Rat Pack, I had shot TV format. So literally square box, the pumpkin. That's how I framed it because it was a television movie. When I did Skulls, we used 185. When I did Crazy Beautiful, we used 185. And when I did Drumline, we used 235. Now, I'm talking a lot of different aspect ratios here. On Greatest Game, we used 185. Now, why did I use 185 on Greatest Game? Well, that aspect ratio was decided specifically on the sole point of who was going to be in the movie and what was the relationship between the two main characters. The two main characters was Francis Wimette and his caddy, Eddie. Now look at the height difference there. Shia LaBeouf was around six foot. Eddie was under four foot. So when you think about a two, three, five aspect ratio and how that is going to be very difficult to frame, you're going to have to go for all these extreme low angles to try and get Eddie in the frame. You're going to have to go much wider than you might want to get. So by going with a one, eight, five aspect ratio, I was able to gain almost another foot on wide shots. So, cause imagine, imagine a two, three, five aspect ratio of Francis Wimette standing and Eddie right next to him looking down the golf course. Well, 
on the right shot at the right focal length that we want for Francis Wimette, Eddie's head is going to be like on a platter. So we're going to have Francis looking really good. And then Eddie's head is going to be at the bottom of frame. He's not going to have any body. And this is what we went into when we started trying to find the aspect ratios. We got both characters in and we looked at different aspect ratios on this film. And we saw immediately that 185 gave us his chest, okay, right across the midsection of his chest while keeping Francis Wimet with just a little headroom above him. And this dictated everything because these were the main characters. This is where the story lied. This was the motivation for the aspect ratio. Okay, so... Taking that in, this is how much a big deal choosing the aspect ratio is. Now, let's take semi-pro for example. That we shot 235. The reason we shot 235 is it was a basketball court and we wanted that width left and right so we could see the ball go from A to B to C to D. And that felt perfect for, you know, the, it didn't require a lot of height because of that, right? Because, you know, basically basketball, other than the ball going way up in the air uh, for the shot, it's a very linear, very rectangle style of play. So 235 worked out very well for that. And also taking what the director wanted, where he didn't want this to feel like a comedy. He wanted it to be funny as hell, but he wanted it to look very cinematic. And the 235 aspect ratio really took this comedy to a whole other level in regards to not looking like a comedy and uh, delivering the cinematic punch that the director wanted. In Crazy Beautiful, we went 185 based on the height of the frame. Now, height of the frame, what do you mean by that? Well, with 235, you don't have a lot of headroom and a lot of footroom, right? You have a lot of edge-to-edge, edge, left and right, but you don't have the foot and headroom. The reason I went crazy beautiful at 185 is because I wanted to frame bizarre frames. Bizarre frames, not by doing this thirds. I was like, screw that. I'm not doing thirds. You know, one-third, two-third, you know, where you place their face in the frame. I mean, all that stuff. It's, it's for textbooks. I wanted there to be a ton of headspace or a ton of foot room. I wanted to offset them way off in the left side of frame, top edge, and have all this negative space to the right and tons of foot room uh, on the bottom. These frames are not done very well in 235, but in 185, they are. So, and the reason for this is the whole mind space of what John Stockwell and I, in talking through this whole film, we said, this is a film about teenage love. What are teenagers? They're inconsistent. They're all over the place. They like somebody one day and they hate them the next. They just are alive and just, you know, uh, just wing it and just are so eclectic and, 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 just up and down and all over the place. Well, the 185 aspect ratio was an, enabled us to be all over the place, to be inconsistent, to be like a teenager.
So you see how much thought process goes into the art of cinematography, not just with lighting, not just with lensing, but again, taking the story and reading that script and asking yourself the question, what is going to be best in telling this story? What is this story? It's teenagers. They're inconsistent. They're all over the place. You know, Kirsten Dunst's character is, she's out of control. She drinks. She does drugs. She's all over the place. One minute there's somebody, her friend. The next minute she hates her. Okay. Carlos, very restricted on the, the path of military school, m very controlling mother, you know, okay, his style of cinematography wants to be very linear, up and down, no diagonal, very military style. Hers wants to be all over the place, wants to be abstract. She's an artist. She's all over the place. She's inconsistent. She's out of control. She's fragile. She's broken. All these things. So the framing wants to feel that. And then when they get together, her framing comes into his world as his framing comes into her world. And then it becomes this beautiful ballet of abstract frames that are somewhat controlled. And oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to over emphasize the choices of what, how I made as an artist, but these are choices that are well thought out, that are not shot from the hip and that are very, very big in helping you and assisting the story. And this is what the art of cinematography is. It's, it's thinking this all through in every aspect. What's the aspect ratio going to do to help tell the story? What is the lighting? What's the color palette of the room? How is the camera going to move and feel? All these things are factored in to delivering the vision. All right. Next question. Hi, Shane. How often are you involved in the process of storyboarding and working with a storyboard artist? I've had the opportunity of working with my director on conceptualizing each and every scene, and I never really realized how much of an impact a DP's perspective can have on the blocking of a scene in pre-production, not just from a compositional standpoint, but also from a lighting perspective. Okay, so let's start there because this is a great question. Working with a storyboard artist and conceptualizing the film and the vision is so huge. And if you can't afford the storyboard artist, shot listing does exactly the same thing because you have to think it through. You have to really design the movie from the ground up. And one of my favorite films that I ever did was kind of a first-time director. His name was Josh Stern, and he got a movie called Swing Vote that Kevin Costner absolutely loved and wanted to star in. So Kevin Costner brought all the weight of all these amazing talents to be right alongside him and to deliver this movie. And it was a very small film. Not a lot of people saw it, but it's a really great movie. And it's so pertinent to what's going on right now in our political scene. If you have not seen this movie, you need to go out and, and see it. Download it wherever you can get uh, a hold of this film. It is so perfect to the political structure of what the hell is going on right now. And about how one person's voice 
can be heard. And this is a big thing that we really have to always remember is it's never get caught up in the whole fact that your voice does not matter. Because when you say that, you give in to letting everything happen that's right in front of you. Your voice does matter. You do make a difference and you have to care about making a difference. It's so important. Okay. You just can't go with the status quo. You can't say, oh, nobody's going to listen to me. Of course they are. They're going to listen to you because you make them listen to you. You beat the drum. So, all right, getting back to this question. So this first time director, he wanted to be so organized. He wanted to know every day when he walked on set, there was a plan. So we sat at Dupar's, this coffee shop in Studio City with my incredibly talented visualist assistant, Po Chan, and Josh Stern. And we literally shot listed the whole movie. And this shot list was not something that's like, okay, yeah, medium, close up, you know, wide shot. This was, you know, describing the scene, describing the line, and telling the editor when to cut to the next shot. This is how specific this shot list was. The editor could have never seen a stitch of footage other than just following the shot list, and he would have delivered an incredible film. That's how detailed it was. We spent over six weeks in prep doing this. And this shot list is a monolith. It tells us when to pan. It tells us when to tilt. It tells us when to dolly. It tells us when to wipe. This is filmmaking designed just like the Coen brothers do. This is how they do it. Storyboard-wise, they storyboard everything. We shot-listed it. We didn't have the money for a storyboard artist and to go through the whole process of storyboarding every frame, so we shot-listed every frame. And this document was impressive as hell. And it starts you thinking. So you're not only taking the script apart, but then you're getting into the blocking and where the actor should be. And you're already starting to think about it in your head. Now, a lot of the times we would come into the scene and Kevin Costner was like, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't do that. I'm just going to lay in bed. Okay. All right, cool. So then we'd have to like wing it, plan B, and go with what the actor wanted and, you know, truly where his instincts were and what he wanted to do was absolutely relevant and perfect and was better than what we had ever planned. But at least we had a plan. So there were those days where, you know, plan B and plan C were deployed, but most of the time plan A was efficiently and effectively done. And the process of working with the storyboard artists and the process of working with the director and shot listing, we really came up with these moments and design of shots that you would have never done if you hadn't done this. I'm going to uh, take an example. Okay, so the other day I'm working on adventures and we had a a flashback sequence where this person gets in a massive accident, his car's on fire, he's flipped over, and a person comes in and saves his life. And the character is reminiscing about this fact. Why did this guy save him? Well, I had in my thought process and Po Chan in our thought process that this was all done through the eyes 
of the person who's telling the story. So it should be his POV. Well, the director's vision was much more in a cinematic vein that he didn't want it to be kind of children of men style. He wanted it to be like, you know, he's telling the story and we're doing it from multiple angles and multiple perspectives and all this stuff done, you know, just to tell the story. And I just, I never could get my head around that. Poe could never get her head around that. No one could get her head around that. Only he could. <laughs> so when we get there on the day and we start to block the scene and we start to see it all happen, now all of a sudden he gets on the same page that Poe and I had been on eight weeks ago. But we had not done any of the planning to pull this off that we should have done to make this a seamless one shot, all from the perspective of the person who is being saved in the car crash. And we had to wing it on that day with radically, radically changing lighting. It was all day exterior. The light was, car was completely in shadow for a good six hours, which if we would have had the plan, if we would have had the storyboard, if we would have had the shot list and the thing all dialed in, then we would have been able to go systematically, shot by shot, gotten the sequence done before the lighting changed so radically. But we did not have that. We were winging it. And the wing was... Luckily, I was able to pull from my years of experience on being able to do all these different hookups by using physical elements of the car to wipe and do split screens that visual effects could seamlessly put stuff together so we could make it one continuous shot. We ended up using five different hookups to be one complete scene and one complete POV's perspective of our character. But what ended up happening is the light changed so radically that we had to sit around for four and a half hours and wait for the sun to set. Well, not set, but go behind a building so the first two shots that we did that were in the shade could continue to be in the shade. And then once the sun got behind the building, we only had an hour to shoot the last five hookups or four hookups of the scene. So while the sun was out and our scene was not balanced and we had to wait for that hour time period, we went through and rehearsed every one of the hookups so we knew exactly what we were doing. So when the light was right, we went through and did every single one of these hookups perfectly two or three times. Now, one of the hookups had a massive explosion that went 50 some odd feet in the air and was 30 feet wide when the car actually blows up as he's pulling him out of the car. Well, that's something you don't do twice. So it had to be perfect. And it was all handheld as well. And it was all handheld on a 12 millimeter so I couldn't light it. It had to be the right light. And the right light means shadowless. So it had to be in the shadow and it had to be able to spin 360 degrees and it had to be able to see a huge amount of area so we could immerse the, the audience in this character's perspective. Well, this is what the shot listing and storyboarding process educates you on. 
So you have a plan and have a design and have all the right key players, your grip, your gaffer, your camera operators, production designer, everyone is on board with this vision. And by being on board with that vision, it makes it go very smooth and very quick. Well, we winged it on that day and we made our day and we got the sequence and I've already seen it cut together with very rough, you know, hookup moments where we're dissolving from one frame to the other to make it feel like it's one person's perspective and one continuous shot and it's working like a million bucks. But again, this was only, I was able to pull from my experience of what I had done on Terminator Salvation and a lot of other movies of doing these hookups and one single shot that I was able to pull this off very quickly. You know, these are the kind of things that, you know, doing it for a while, you can wing it a lot more. You can be very reactionary to a director that wants to, all of a sudden he sees the light and he saw the light that day. Poe and I saw the light eight weeks ago, but that's okay. You know, the director was, my God, he's dealing with talent issues, scheduling, budget. On the director, there is so much on his or her plate that I am doing everything possible to try and take things off of his or her plate so he or she can do her his job even better. And this was one that I wanted to try and take off his plate, but he was he had it completely different vision, but then he saw the light and it was like, whoa, okay. And plan B, C, D, E, F, and G had to, you know, go into action. And my God, it was so fun to like see the crew just like energized and being in the moment and working it all out. And and uh, we eventually came into delivering an incredible sequence. And, but getting back to Brandon's question is the storyboard process and the shot listing process is so big to you really understanding and thinking through the blocking of where the actors are going to be. And by doing that, it also starts to help you within that space. And space is in a vacuum, right? Because you really don't know what the sets are going to look like. I mean, you have a rough idea because, okay, they're in a trailer and obviously these are going to be windows and there's going to be some practicals around. And so you can start to place them within the trailer uh, like I did on Swing Vote and where that blocking would be and where I can light from to create that mood and tone. So, you know, these are things that it really starts to get you thinking. And this process is very, very important. Okay. Next question. Hi, Shane. I love everything you post on the inner circle. It's one of the best online resources I've ever come across. I'm just one. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, you guys rock and we really appreciate all of our members and, and everyone, you know, banding together and creating this incredible community. Okay. I'm just wondering if you could show more of camera movement and how to approach the shoot, where to set up the camera and why. Well, I'm going to end with this question because I wanted to kind of talk about what our new content for 2017 is going to entail. And it's going to be very much a lot of this. We asked all of our members and you were so graceful and answering this of what you all wanted to learn about. And the biggest single question, or sorry, the statement of what you all wanted to learn about is lens choice, camera placement, 
blocking and lighting of that blocking. So we are going to do a ton of that in 2017. And I'm going to take a sequence from one of my films. I'm going to talk about the whole process that the director and I talked about in pre-production. Then also the blocking that we discuss. And then showing up on the day and watching the actors move and where their blocking might change or what or it goes as planned. And then how I lens what specific lenses I use to be able to convey and keep the audience understanding and not being confused on where we are and where the, the, the character should look. I'm going to go into eyeline. I'm going to go into over the shoulders and what specific lenses are best for over the shoulder work. We're going to go into all this. It is going to be so much fun because there is nothing online about this at all. We did some research after we saw all of these amazing uh, requests of what you all wanted to learn about, this being the single most asked for. And I was like, all right, team, let's get online. Where, What's there about blocking and lighting and lenses you use for over the shoulders and wide shots and all that kind of stuff. And there just was not anything. So know that 2017 has this within the inner circle and all of the amazing inner circle members that signed up for our workshop in October are going to experience all of these things and all these lessons and learning about this because I'm putting a huge emphasis on this camera movement, lens choice, blocking, talking with the director, listening to the actors, um, what's their motivation and how the lighting and lensing and choice of mood and tone can be story assist. All right. That concludes our August 2016 podcast. I thank you so much for these amazing questions. And I just want to continue to say these podcasts exist based on you, the members of the Inner Circle and this incredible community. So I want to make sure that you keep on submitting these questions. You can do that on our Inner Circle website. And I just want you to keep on asking these questions because it f it's knowledge that I'm immediately able to share to all the members. And this is the gold within the inner circle because it's something it's one-on-one -on -one. i'm reaching out and touching each one of you that ask these questions as well as we're able to take a question that maybe somebody always had but never asked and now we're able to share that knowledge to all of our other members thank you so much and have a wonderful day if you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships. 
networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20. And join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.